0: Welcome to One Two Hundred for another week of international New Zealand politics. I'm your host, Kyle Church, and I'm joined by Jan Tartenberg. Welcome to the co-hosting seat, Jan.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Uh,
0: how is your, How is your midweek uh, France podcast? If you've uh, been listening, uh, uh, audience, um, we had a podcast midweek uh, talking about the upcoming French election, which is occurring tonight or, or monday morning
1: yeah yeah so the french vote on um vote on sunday in the second round of their election it was really good um i on only made it onto the podcast about halfway through which was entirely just an issue of miscommunication but it was great to, to chat to branco and to to david who just um yeah it's an incredible depth of knowledge
0: yeah um really really great um podcast if you feel like you can uh Get in there and listen to it before the election proper if you're going to have a watch party get some background listening beforehand but um, we have a little bit more to say about that uh, at the end of the podcast today Uh, but wanted to start uh, somewhat closer to home uh, as Jacinda Ardern has I guess re-entered the international stage is how it's being pitched uh, with visits to both Singapore and Japan it's really starting to think about, but Aden basically didn't leave the country during the entirety of the, the pandemic proper. Um, and so, this, yeah, this has got top, bill, top billing um, for, for the government, uh, for a lot of the dignitaries that she's meeting over there. It's been like a, a huge media um, opportunity as well. Uh, BBC World was interviewing her, uh, taking the chance to to catch her while she was uh, in those other countries. And it's been interesting to see the way that the New Zealand media has handled it because it's been a bit up and down. Have you seen much of that coverage, Jan?
1: I just saw the Dancing Kiwis, which I thought were (laughs) exceptional. (laughs) Truly stunning, absolutely wonderful stuff. I was a little bit surprised by the coverage because I I don't know, my intuitive reaction is kind of, um, who cares, head of government, heads abroad, shakes some hands, does some deals. Um, I found that that kind of excess of attention almost on it a little bit strange. But as you say, it's worth considering that she hasn't been abroad in a while. And of course it leads it, it also means that a lot of the journalists who cover her, I guess, haven't been abroad with her in a long time. So they too are kind of giddy about getting back out again. Um, so I guess that, that's maybe what's driving it in part is this kind of just general sense of, you know, things starting up again.
0: The, the main takeaway for me has been, you know, after two years of Ardoon's major role um, in media um, and facing the public has been fronting the COVID upd- updates. And this is just entirely different. It's, it's. I think it's a significant pivot away from the role she's been playing as prime minister um, since 2020. Um, and I think she's acquitted herself well. Um, you know, it was, I'm not sure you'd really say it was up in the air whether she'd be able to make that transition uh, back to the world stage. Really interesting, I think as well, in terms of, where she has gone first uh some of our you know i I wouldn't say like she's visiting like our big um our, our biggest allies or trading partners uh these are significant um and historical partners um in the region uh but i think maybe the most important factor is that these are two of the major Western-aligned kind of Asia-Pacific regional powers that aren't Australia, right? Mm.
1: I also wonder to what degree this will work in her favor domestically because um, one of the, I mean, of course, these kind of receptions are, you know, hilarious to watch, this kind of Kiwi stuff, you know, she this calligraphy contest. all of that is fun and nice. But the other thing that happened, um, which I was, to a degree surprised by is, um, you know, she was inundated by people who wanted to take photos with her, mm-hmm. who were just happy to see her. Um, again, I think it allows, you know, she's been, as you say at home, she's been fronting the COVID response that had at a certain point propelled her to, you know, unimagined heights of polling and popularity domestically, but that has waned to a degree. And I wonder whether that will to, to an extent be buttressed now by the positive attention she receives abroad. But that's just entirely hypothetical. I don't know.
0: I and she's a she's a superstar overseas. I think she's more popular um, overseas than she is here, in, in a lot of respects. And yeah, as you said, people were she was getting crazy rounds of applause. Like people were cheering her. Um, as you said, people coming up to her for photos and and the like, um, shake her hand. It's yeah. I, I guess we'll see what what happens next with it. Um, there were obviously some. Um, it alluded to some some deals done as well. The major one that I've got my eye on is the security agreement um, in Japan, uh, which again it speaks to that kind of like that Western alignment. Um, the the region is is maybe in for some some rough seas uh, coming into the next decade, and alongside the Kind of dignitary meetings and, <laughs> uh, you know, the launch of the zespri stuff, the kiwi fruit season, um, and the, the the business lunches, was this agreement uh, with the Japanese government, uh, with the Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, to share intelligence, to share classified intelligence, um, right up to you know the top secret level, which is an incredibly important notable um, agreement to be making uh between New Zealand and Japan I think I think it probably signifies you know a a further a consolidation of or a a further hardening of a stance towards China um and yeah I guess what what we're expecting in um in the Asia-Pacific region over the next next few years.
1: The question of China's foreign policy going forward, I think, is an interesting one, and I, I do think not to drag everything back to that, but I do think we will have to see how the war in Ukraine develops too, because there was a fear initially after the Russian invasion that Taiwan would be next. You know, that was kind of well. This is what was being put out, right?
0: (laughs) By by
1: the U.S. You know, that's the line they're running. Yeah, and of course, and of course, you can understand the intuitive fear. I think the reality. You know of the of the war in Ukraine suggests that that was perhaps always unlikely, or if it wasn't always unlikely, then it certainly is now. Yeah. Um, and what that means further for yeah, as you say, for international relations in the region, we'll we'll have to see. But it is interesting that um, that in spite of that kind of possibility, you know, of a I mean, Chinese invasion of Taiwan waning, um, there is that consolidation of of a kind of block against China in the region.
0: I think that kind of brings us to our next um, topic that we wanted to to touch on, which is the security agreement between China and the Solomon Islands. Um, So this was beginning um, to to show its head. A couple of weeks ago, the leadership of the Solomon Islands uh, was talking with, with China about having some kind of security arrangement. And, you know, people just lost their shit media and politicians in Australia, particularly, um, we're talking about invasion. Um, if, they, if they chose to, to do this, I mean, that's definitely not happening currently. Now, uh, kind of post this uh, agreement and, and some of those things moving forward, uh, it's expedited a whole bunch of US action uh, in the Solomon Islands. So there've been visits there already by uh, diplomats. Um, they're talking about reestablishing the embassy that they closed, I think, uh, around 30 years ago. And it's looking like a pretty good diplomatic move by the Solomon Islands to, to draw a bit more attention back to back to those relationships, and maybe get China and US vying for you know who who can do the most uh, for the, for the people of the country because it's been yeah it's just been, it's been it's been left to I, I don't know if rot is the right word but certainly struggle since. World War II in a lot of in a lot of uh ways. So I like for, for those who, who don't know the history, the Solomon Islands was the site of one of I think maybe the biggest kind of battle between Japanese and, and US forces um in the Pacific. Uh and at the time, I think even like if they're speaking historically, um the US still talks about you know the forces in the Solomon Islands being absolutely like incredibly important to uh, victory through, through that region and the kind of legacy of that is even to this day there is there's ordinance all over the island um, that's been unexploded they're still like having to go out I think I saw even even yesterday that they are planning a major ordnance removal over the next couple of weeks you know and in, in the intermediary time they've gone through an independence They've gone through some, it's called the tensions, uh, which it was a, a period of inter-island ethnic tensions uh, that uh, led to violence uh, that was, that needed the um, kind of intervention of Australia uh, and New Zealand um, and Pacific security forces. And it's just kind of sat there since, and you know, they're relatively stable, but not yeah, able to move forward in a lot of ways. And, mm. you know, the disestablishment of the U.S. embassy, the lack of aid from Australia and New Zealand, the U.S. has essentially driven them to look for their aid elsewhere.
1: They're but... also one of those, they're also, I mean, they're also one of the Pacific states, right, which is acutely threatened by climate change in a way in which I think is very difficult to comprehend for people. Um, in North America or in Europe.
0: Yeah, and even, like, New Zealand str- struggles mm. with Pacific Islands, in particular, coming to us uh, with that worry. Mm. But, yeah, it's happened. Um, I-, I think it's it's worrying though, some of the rhetoric that the US has run out here. Um, that, that, like... So Solomon has said we're not going to allow China to establish a military base here, and and rather than uh, allow that to to stand um, or to accept that, uh, the US has said, well, if you did, would respond accordingly, and you know that, that sounds like a that's not even a veiled threat, um, <laughs> you know, and this is from a top diplomat for the region. It's um, a, a, you know alongside that they've reestablished connection, like diplomatic ties with the Solomon Islands. They're talking about reopening the embassy. Um, They're talking about aid and help with uh, ordinance removal. I mean, looking like a win for Solomon Islands more than anything else. Um, I'm just flabbergasted that Australia, New Zealand and the US have opened with such a, a hawkish salvo.
1: Yeah, it is. It is interesting. To see the, I mean, I to be honest, I, I will openly admit I don't know the contents of the of the deal that's been struck, but I have noticed the the rhetoric as well and was surprised by the intensity as you were, you know, this this phrase, we will respond accordingly. What on earth does that mean? I mean, uh, strange and it's probably the kind of thing which we hope nothing will follow because at the moment they have more immediate concerns. Um, but it is interesting to see, you know, this kind of knee-jerk imperialism come out again. Yeah. Um small states strike, strikes deal with our geopolitical foe and we will respond accordingly. I mean, it's a weird kind of script, but it's it's a familiar one, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, and I think it it speaks to that. You know, the, the drawing of lines. Um, through the region as, as we're looking potentially at some kind of, I, I don't even know if you'd say it's a, a polar realignment at this point, um, you know, where the West is, uh, you know, particularly the United States is seems very keen at the moment to try and stamp its authority back on the world in many ways. And, and perhaps, this language is part of that, uh, and this is just what we're going to see going forward from, from U.S. diplomacy, um, because if they, if they are making those claims um, or those kinds of illusions uh, in in this in this case, which is pretty minor, I am concerned about what we might see uh, in other situations, which are maybe more of a security threat, um, or, you know, in that uh, area.
1: Yeah, I understand that. I mean, I think, you know, the the question always is to what degree is some of this for domestic consumption? Um, there are the, the opinion in... know the US political class and the foreign policy elite at the moment already is that, as you say, the United States isn't doing enough to support Ukraine, right? There are continued calls for a no-fly zone or indeed the direct intervention of American troops. And I think this was just one of those things where it was a convenient example, as you say, to suggest that if um, America's interests were threatened around the world, America might intervene to, to assert those interests. I don't know to what degree that is a realistic possibility, but I think it was seen as an opportunity to be seized on and to and exert its ability to bend, you know, um, geopolitical developments to its to its will in a way that a lot of people at the top of the U.S. foreign policy establishment um, would hope for that to be the case in the context of Ukraine. Which mercifully it's not because. I don't, I already, it's already we're on a knife's edge there and it's unclear, I mean, you know, enforcing enough lies on seems like a recipe for disaster and, and, and worse. So it's unfortunate um, that the Solomon Islands in this case appear to be maybe the, the field on which this is played out. Um, but I would, I would suggest that a lot of this really is for domestic consumption rather than any kind of assertion that something really will be done.
0: I think potentially also for Australian consumption. So there's a, mm-hmm. you know, the Australian election is in May. Um, it has, this particular issue has been a, a hot button topic, as they say, um, during mm. uh, during the week. And it gives the opportunity for both Morrison and Albanese to uh, kind of do some hard man posturing. So there's that aspect to it as well. And uh, we're hoping for next week to, to get some content for you all. Uh, around the Australian election and maybe we'll talk about that with our guest. But I, I think the, the kind of hidden background to a, a lot of the stuff that's happening in the Solomon Islands is the fact that, although we don't often talk about it, colonialism is still very alive and well in the Pacific. Uh, and it's something we'd really like to ignore um, in New Zealand, because we're a, a major component of that. But there are very many Western powers that still have their hands, you know, deep in Pacific resources. You know, some some places are still uh, part of European countries, essentially for all democratic purposes. Right.
1: That is a very nice transition to our little <laughs> blog about the French election, because of course France is still a, you know, they're no longer called um, they're no longer called colonies; they're called uh, collectivités or departement doutre d'outre-mer. Um, they are to a, to a significant ascend in the Pacific, of course, French Polynesia, uh, just northwest, or northeast, I think, of um, of New Zealand. Um, they voted in the election, right? So um, people who live there are French citizens. They vote in the French election. The, um, these overseas territories of France voted overwhelmingly uh, for Mélenchon in the first round of the election. So Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the candidate of the far left. And yeah, on Sunday, French time, um, the second round is due to begin. And it looks as though, I mean, polling now, we talked about this on Wednesday, um, polling now suggests that Macron will win um, with a smaller margin than in 2017. So in 2017, it was about um, 65 to 35 percent, something around that. Um, For Macron versus Le Pen in the second round, it looks like polling currently is around fifty-five to forty-five, which is close, um, but is is a is an advantage that she's unlikely to to be able to overcome. Um, So, knock on wood somewhere, but it looks like um, the center will hold.
0: What do you make of you know some of these claims uh, from Macron? that we're just seeing uh, pop up in the media recently around. Uh, I think French people have to work longer hours uh, and f- for more years. How like how is that kind of rhetoric is going to go down with the with the French public, especially given that uh, Le Pen has kind of moved towards some of this right wing economic populism.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting um, to consider the narrative immediately after the first round, because immediately after the first round, there was the suggestion that Macron would have to pivot to the left, that he would have to work hard in the next couple of weeks in order to get people who voted for Mélenchon in the first round, who voted far left in the first round, to vote for him in the second round. Um, he, to no one's surprise, has done little of that, really. Um, I think his gamble, which seems to be paying off, ultimately is that more people would prefer it for it for the president of the french republic not to be marine le pen and will vote for him as a result of that so there is this kind of tactical consideration on the part of both voters and on the part of um, macron as well right he he's hedging his bets he's betting to a certain degree on the fact that even if he doesn't make um, concessions for his planned um, welfare and, um, and pension reforms, that he will be the more desirable of the two options now on offer. Um, and it looks from the polling that I've seen to be the case that around a third to 40% of voters um, who voted for Menachon in the first round will vote for Macron in the second. Um, a similar number will abstain or vote, um, vote blank, um, as they call it in, in France. And then a smaller percentage will will vote for um, Le Pen in the second round. And yeah, it looks to be that that gamble is paying off, that enough people are interested in not getting an outright, you know, fascist as the president of the republic to, to swallow the reforms that he's proposing. And I think, you know, in a way, that's a very shrewd gamble for him. I think it shows, again, this the poverty of this kind of analysis that suggests that eventually the centrists will have to pop, pivot to the left because, of course, they never do, right? I mean, this is so, it's always, you know, it's 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 always the right that's pandered to, right, in a in a meaningful sense, never the left. I mean, there was some analysis to um, the French um, news outlet Mediapart, um, they may, they usually operate a paywall, they released from behind their paywall a lot of the content on Marine Le Pen in the lead up to the second round. And one article that I can really recommend that they released if you read French or if you can make good use of Google Translate was about her economic program, because there is that perception that Le Pen really is, you know, has adapted elements of a stronger kind of social welfare state, right? But only for French people. And it the article did very well to construct to reconstruct why that analysis really misses the point. So um, the people who make that point and they kind of deconstructed uh, an analysis made by a, by uh, an economist I think he is basically said, oh, you know, there are x number of economic pledges in a program, and of that x, there is a certain percentage. That I that I as the person conducting the study um, identify as being on the center left or the left, right. So this really weird kind of quantitative analysis of these pledges. But the thing that Media Power did a good job to to make clear is that there is no coherent sense behind that of um, of society which operates on principles other than those of the free market, right? There might be. Um, there might be some sense in which, um, I don't know, the sneak the minimum wage might be raised further or um, our working hours reduced or something like that. You know, you have these kind of one-off pledges here and there, but they are very much concessions in the context of a wider program, which upholds, right, the neoliberal order that Macron is ultimately so fond of. And I think that's worth considering too, is that the option that's on offer is not, Truly, an alternative, right? It is ultimately a kind of far-right neoliberal project, one which aims at the expulsion, right, of <laughs> ultimately millions of people who are French, but who are simply not white, right, from the body politic in France.
0: it's this really like the, the electoral significance of that, and and not just for France, but um, generally in terms of strategies and the ability of the center to rely on the left vote, uh, because you know, the left doesn't want a fascist. While at the same time, uh, you know, this, this horseshoe theory stuff and um, like, oh, the left will go fascist or whatever um, if they're just given enough um, left-wing economic policy. It, it seems to always be given the lie to whenever we see it occur in the real world. And in fact, for uh, Le Pen, some of the, the groups that we see have the highest, or will have the highest uh, voting record for her are among the gendarmes, right?
1: Yes, so um, there was some superficial polling. So um, the way, just very briefly for people who are not familiar, the way policing operates in France, very broadly speaking, is there's the national police, which is civilian, and then there's the gendarme, right? Literally the armed men who are military. Um, Both of them police 50% of French territory, um, but the police nationale um, polices around 95% of the population because they they police the kind of heavy urban centers, whereas the gendarmes, they um, have smaller cities and villages, right, very kind of um, sparsely inhabited rural areas, and there was some polling that suggested in this election that about 80% of the gendarmes vote for uh, the Rassemblement National. In previous elections, it's been kind of similar, 70-75% of the police national too interested in voting for the far right. I mean, this is in so many ways not surprising. Um, I think ultimately, and you're right to, to reiterate this point, we can, you know, I think it's David, David put this very well in the, in the podcast we did on the French election, which is, um, Macron will win. That seems to be pretty, I mean, pretty certain. Again, I don't, you know, if you listen to this on uh, Tuesday and not independence, the new president of the, of the French Republic. Hey, we're not to be wrong, we're not to be wrong. <laughs> it's entirely my fault. But at the moment, every indicator suggests that Macron will win. Um, and I think, you know, it, it will be interpreted ultimately as a victory for his politics, rather than a kind of narrow avoidance of defeat, which may require moderation and compromise, right? And that suggests that what he will be able to do is implement his program, right? I think there's no there's no question in my mind. I mean, I, I, again, I, on this point, I'm very happy to be proven wrong, but there's no question in my mind that he will see this as a mandate to continue, you know, the kind even if of um, liberal reforms.
0: Even if, you know, yeah. he, what we, we, can, we can intuit that he is... And indulging in brinkmanship here with the left electorate right that he mm-hmm. knows there's like some strategic electoral thing to that and that mm-hmm. they are not endorsing his politics um mm-hmm. they are endorsing an anti le um yeah uh, yeah ultimately now
1: the only yeah but he will say now on is the that only
0: choice whether he believes it or not
1: yes yes whether he believes it or not but the question is whether he will the choice now right you have as a voter in france is between is really only the lesser of two evils, right? And there will be a significant number of people who will decide that they have to vote for Macron because of the pen presidency would be worse. I mean, that may particularly be the case for, you know, um, we talked about this too in the podcast in the French election, if you're interested in who votes for which candidate, um, Mélenchon has by far the kind of um, most grounding in um, more diverse communities, you know, in, in France, um, and among French um, Muslims and um, French citizens of say North African descent, and so on, uh, and you know, for these people, of course, the stakes are much much higher. Right over the pen presidency, it's not to say that Macron's a good option for them. Right, I mean, when you look at the kind of Islamophobic stuff that he has said over his five-year um, tenure, it's not exactly a true alternative, but. Again, the stakes may very well feel higher if you're a member of those communities, right? And the question is to what extent that narrative that people voted for Macron because they endorsed his project will be effectively contested by civil society and media, right? Of course, as you say, Macron has a vested interest in making that point, but then the question is to what degree that may be tempered um, in public discourse and who can say, right?
0: Heading back up to New Zealand just for the the final part of the the cast. Early in the week, the police uh, shot and killed uh, a young Maori man, uh, Chaos Price, and obviously a, a huge tragedy. Once again, you know, uh, police violence is is most often used against uh, Maori men um, in our community, uh, especially when it comes to to killing statistics, which is, is horrific. But the early PR from the media uh, took this police line, which immediately painted him as a, a direct threat to, to the police and maybe to civilians, uh, which only w- within 24 hours was shown just to be incorrect. Uh, so the line originally run out was that he was, ramming uh, he was in charge of a motor vehicle and was ramming people with his car when he was shot but this wasn't the case Um, he he had rammed a police car but he was shot unarmed um, and outside a car essentially um, trying trying to, to break into another one yeah just a another example another horrible mark against policing in this country and against a media that is continually willing to whitewash uh, and launder police excuses for for their behavior in this sense
1: Mm. yeah i i was i was so so struck by by this case um in part because I am, you know, I'm a recent arrival in New Zealand, I, there are a lot of things that I am learning about this country, right, because I, um, as people will be will be able to tell, probably I'm I'm originally from Germany, I spent a lot of time um, in the UK, but yeah, I have known New Zealand only from afar, and um, to, to learn about you know the continued oppression of, of Maori in this country, oh. I think is has been really instructive, right? So I, um, I'm gonna throw out some statistics, which I learned, which I found um, stunning. And um, a lot of these are thanks to Emery Rakete on RNZ who talked about the fact that police shootings have in the past 10 years tripled. So this is the fifth killing Um, of a Maori man I think by police in Taranaki in the past 20 years um, and that over 50% of prison inmates are Maori and that's that to me is is crazy right and I think it's it's it just goes to show how how present um, you know the kind of settler colonial frame still is in in New Zealand and I I agree with you the the shift in and this is something we are i mean familiar with right i mean people he, people in new zealand will be familiar with it um from new zealand but i'm familiar with it from the us context that there is always this first narrative that makes the police look good and as though they have responded in an appropriate way And that's the one that sticks. threat right and, and and very often that sticks and of course it's all what also accompanied and i think in this case too by you know a photo of the person who was killed, which makes them look in the mind certainly of you know white bourgeois audiences as a kind of acute threat, right? Um, but as you say, you know, um, Price was 22 years old, father of three, baby a couple of weeks old, um, and he was not in a car when he was killed by police, and he was unarmed. And one of the things that I found quite um surprising in i i did the thing which you're never supposed to do which is i looked at some of these tweets and some of these newspaper articles and i read some of the comments
0: i think it's useful like people say never read the comments but it's it it's a good way to get an indication of the kind of people who care enough (laughs) to comment right
1: it's instructive right in very specific ways so one thing that i was struck by was this argument and i don't i i'm in some ways, sorry to bring it up here, but you know, this argument that, oh, yes, he may well have been unarmed, but he was trying to counteract someone and a car ultimately is a deadly weapon. Right. And this from people who I'm going to, I'm going to hypothesize would under no other circumstances, accept that a car is a deadly weapon,
0: especially when, um, in disagreements between, uh, people who drive and cyclists. Right.
1: Yes. Yes, and and you know, it it is. I think the car as a as a weapon, the car as a site of the policing of non-white bodies, right, is a really interesting um, facet of discourse in the U.S. In recent um, months and years, um, you can see that the right acknowledges this too, in the sense that in various <laughs> um, legislatures in the U.S., they are introducing laws which remove responsibility from drivers who kill or who hurt protesters, because of Mm -hmm. course, increasingly protests are taking part on highways, not just climate protests, but social justice protests as well. And I think it's so interesting to, to see echoes of that in this case.
0: Yeah, you mentioned those those statistics from uh, Emily, um, who's been on the cast. Uh, And of course, as always, um, Papa or People Against uh, Prisons Aotearoa are doing the work on this issue and have have been pretty forthright about you know what what the problems are with this because it, it just keeps on happening um and it feels like we don't go a couple of weeks without some violence being perpetrated by police against unarmed maori people and you know whether that's like the the ultimate case in, in in this last week or spying on kids um, or beating kids up or incarcerating people etc it's yeah. it's horrific
1: i i found i found again listening to emily on RNZ really really interesting because you can see how narrow the frame for opposition to this kind of policing is so she made the point that um, that it would be worthwhile to consider even you know I mean of course um, her politics go further than that I'm going to say but you know the, the suggestion she made um, there was to disarm police and the 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 interviewer I think um, was sympathetic to that but then played devil's advocate and said well but what about if there is someone who is violent or has a gun or whatever and in doing so reduces the scope for Meaningful discussion on this issue. Because by the time that somebody has acquired a weapon and is threatening to seriously harm or kill other people, I mean, entirely aside the fact that that was not what was happening in this case, Chaos Price was unarmed, out of a car, and police, for whatever reason, right, and we can imagine any number of reasons decided that he was such a threat that they had to deploy deadly force. So, of course, that's not at all what happened here. Police have been unarmed in this instance. He may very well still be alive, right? But then they immediately raised this question of, um, oh, what if, ultimately, what if there's a terror attack and how are police ever going to really respond to that? And the reality is police don't. I mean, in in a in a in a in a sense that um, you know the, the kind of police officers who go on the beat every day they, they don't respond to these kind of no we have um, a different scenarios.
0: set of police force yes. for that
1: yes and of course also the reality is that if you have arrived at that moment there's there have been serious failures in the lead up to that and to start the discussion in that moment is to ignore the fact that having arrived at that moment is the result of multiple failures on on the part of very many authorities right um so for instance the sense that yes of course if you have someone who is radicalized into a violent ideology and who has already acquired weapons and is already out on a killing spree yes the the only way to stop that person is to harm them in some way that 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 is but but to start the discussion in that space is to Erase the failures that have gone before. Well, this is basically just... level authorities off the hook, who well, because they have a they have a responsibility, right? I don't know if it's the same here. In Germany, police have two primary responsibilities, right? One is the um, pursuit of people who have committed crimes, and the other one is the prevention of crime, right? And the prevention of crime, of course, in a very technical sense, means I don't know stopping someone from breaking into a house. Of course, that police don't do that, right? The the prevention of crime ultimately has very many social factors. For instance, right? And when we when we focus very narrowly on the stopping crime in progress, what we're racing is the failure of the other responsibility, which is the prevention of crime, which very often has multiple right origins that then become very quickly political, right? The reason we start In the moment where the crime is being committed or where the atrocity is being committed is because it erases the political discussion about how how do we make sure that, for instance, if somebody is at risk of being radicalized, they have the kind of support that they need, right, in their community or from social workers or from, you know, all this kind of apparatus that allows for people to be supported rather than um, and end up in a situation where the only thing we can talk about is where the police are justified in killing them, right? It's, this really, that, that n- emanated, you know.
0: it's this really nasty narrative trick, which has, you know, yeah. as long as policing has existed, um, you know, as a as an arm of state force uh, has been utilized, like, to take the conversation away from what policy can be enacted, you know, what can we do to ensure our communities are safe and strong, To You should be afraid um and we need to surveil everyone uh and have an absolute monopoly on force to save you um and Mm. and the media on some level must know this but it's almost automatic for them to to play devil's advocate in this way right because there are there are clearly other ways to to push back on or critique from okay what would you do perspective but to immediately kind of raise the stakes in that way is to just forcibly pull the conversation uh, in an unhelpful direction, in, in, a, in a direction that plays into, um, you know, fair responses and security responses. Um, it's, a, it's a psychological trick that I don't think any journalist um, who feels I like have a responsibility to society should feel comfortable using.
1: I think you know. I think it's, but I think there are there are lots of problems, right? And I think one problem is that often police make it easy to respond in these kind of ways because when something like this happens, the police puts out a statement, right? And they put out a statement. And they're like, "Oh, here are all the facts of this case," and as a journalist on a deadline, right, who very often doesn't have a ton of time, I don't, I, I, I. I accept that there will be people who will act in this way because it um, it suits their ideology. But I also would I'm I'm also hopeful, right? In some ways, I'm an optimist. I'm also hopeful that there are some people who do this because the the pressures, right? Because they they too work in a they too work in an environment where they where a lot of journalists don't have a ton of time. Yeah, it's just a well shortened path, right? yes, and, you know, oh, I will just write this up and I will, um, I have the statement from the police and then I will call someone from some organization and they will say something else happened and then I will write this up and I will send it off because that's all I can do in the kind of half hour that I've got until my boss comes to me and tells me, you're on a deadline, where is the piece on this big thing that has just happened, right? I i, I am sympathetic to those kind of pressures because journalists are subject to it. Um The problem, of course, is that, that the police make it easy. And this is why organizations like um, Papa are so important, right? Because they provide a kind of counter-narrative, because they're able to kind of collect statements or evidence or um, just accounts that that run counter to that and that make it easy for journalists to to access that, right? To access a different narrative, a different story of the event. Because yeah, if the if the first and the easiest one available is the one by the police, then that's the one that gets reported first, not as you mentioned earlier then plays into the hands of the police. right? And I also think the intuitive response for some politicians, especially in time of an election, is to um, um, switch into this law and order narrative. Um, And in some ways it is convenient because it is extremely easy. Because very often there are two main things that are proposed when we talk about law and order politics, right? We talk about new categories of offenses, or we talk about harsher punishments for the offenses that already exist. Both of these require little to no additional funding, right, at the first instance, because what they require ultimately very often is simply a revision of existing law. They don't require this kind of coalition building that may be needed if you were going to increase even the budget of the police, right? So even, even if you were going to implement law and order politics. One way of doing that would be to give the police more manpower, right? To, to, to police the crimes which already exist. But very often that's not even, they don't even go that far, right? Because that again, that requires, that requires you to spend political capital because you have to increase the budget of the police. You may make yourself unpopular by having to decrease the budget for something else and so on, right? Of course, increasing the budget of the police is often one of the easiest things you can do, but it's, it's even harder, even if only marginally, Then expanding the categories of offenses or expanding the um, penalties for offenses that already exist. And I think that is really, really, it's really, really important to say two things. One is that um, harsher penalties are not deterrence, right? They don't function in that way at all. We have ample evidence to, to prove that point, right? And ultimately, even on its face, right? If you say you want to be supportive of law enforcement and give them all the power and resources they need, um, creating new categories of crime doesn't actually even do that. It just means that police have to do more work with the same resources. So even on its face, it fails, right? And I think all of that is important to keep in mind um, when we are falling into discussions about some of these issues, because it is very, very easy to to um, to cloak um, these kind of policies in what is really just a desire to be seen to be doing something. And there too, sometimes um, journalists fall into the trap of reporting on the change that is proposed, but not on the effect of that change, right? And that that too is that too is again the kind of driver of this you know um, this news cycle, which moves very quickly. But it is also the fact that a lot of people don't you know a lot of people don't wanna they don't wanna know that they don't wanna know that the burden of the kind of because you know people don't want to think of themselves as bad people right or as people who have who are prejudiced or who are racist and they don't necessarily want to know that the policy which seemed to them to be good ended up with an effect that overwhelmingly right punished people of color they don't really want to know that and it is imp- and so the interest right the interest from both sides from the, the the producers if you will the journalists the media outlets and from the side of the consumers is to move on to move on to something else and I think um, Again, that's not a personal failure of a lot of people. Nobody wants to believe that they're a bad person. It's just how a system works, right? Or whatever. Yeah, but also, yeah, you, know, you, don't to, you, don't, you don't want to believe that you're prejudiced, right? You want to believe that you are a good person. I think everybody wants to believe that of themselves, yeah. right? And that's and I think understandable. It,
0: that's part of why it's so important to organize and build narratives and, and do the yeah. work that Papa is doing. Um, and I'll say yeah. to everyone um, yeah. who's listening, uh, head over to Papa, P-A-P-A.org.nz. Um, If this is something, an area that interests you, get involved, organize with them, um, maybe donate to them. Uh, they're doing fantastic work uh, and uh, just incredibly necessary um, in, in so many uh, parts of, of the process of making, this, uh, making Aotearoa a, a better place for everyone. Hey, we're, we're just, a, um, we've actually gone far over what we'd intended to do, which is fine, which is good. Um, there was a lot to talk about. But yeah, thank, thanks so much uh, for joining me this morning, yeah.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm sorry, I rambled on a little bit there.
0: No, 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 we both did. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's what, that's what the audience gets. They get more content. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Uh, if you want to check out some of our other work, um, head over to dot nz. We'll have more content for you in midweek, hopefully, uh, and again back with current events next Sunday. Uh, hope to have a few articles up about inflation in the next week as well uh, from some of our contributors. This has been uh, the latest episode of one of two hundred. Share, like, subscribe, etc. We'll catch you next time.
1: The dying embers of your dreams is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass up full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational, will you die keeping your glass up your nation, you hate
0: nationalism. You don't hate your nation,
1: you hate nationalism. No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism. Oh, you don't